This is a becoming creature. On this episode, I speak to Brooke about fishing in Alaska, unhealthy relationships, homelessness, drug abuse, and living better every day. I hope you enjoy. I am your host, Nick, and I am here with our very own beloved, bubbly, boisterous, unbelievable Brooke Bowman. Brooke, welcome. Oh, what an intro. Thank you. (laughs) So you spent time doing commercial fishing in Alaska. What was that like? Oh, it was wonderful. Uh, First one up when I was 17. It was my first real job spent three months on the boat. Um, when I, another summer, a few years after that, where I spent a little bit longer, uh, you wake up at three in the morning, you're working all day, like very, very difficult physical work, but you're out there with like a pot of orca whales over there and like some sea otters over there and bald eagles and glaciers. And it was just, it was really, really incredible and very meditative. It was gorgeous. So you went there when you were 17. Were you going to school in Alaska? No, 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 no. I just went up for the summer. I was doing salmon fishing, which is a, a summer, a summer thing. Oh, that's awesome. So what was the actual fishing like? Like, what were you doing? So I, I worked on a saner, which is a small boat. They're usually around 50 feet long and half of that is deck. And they've got a net that's 80 feet wide and I think a quarter mile long. And you see, so you've got one person is the captain who, who steers the boat, operates hydraulics. You have another person who runs the skiff, which is a smaller boat that you use to pull out the net. Uh, it's actually, they're called mm-hmm. purse saners. Uh, when you had the net pull all the way out, it's got some lead lines on the bottom that are very heavy and then some floating cork bits on the top that are light and keep the top afloat. And you kind of like wrap it around a school of fish. And then you, you pull the lead line over the, the boom, which is uh, run by hydraulics. And that tightens it together. And you kind of like get a purse shape with all the fish inside. You dump those over the edge, but you need to have two people on the deck who are stacking the net as it comes down because if it doesn't go down uh, in kind of like folded layers then it can go back out at sea with um, tears in it it'll rip and things and you have to fix that by hand so um, each set takes about 40 minutes and uh, I mean sometimes we got I don't know 40 50,000 pounds in one set what motivated you to go to Alaska where were you moving from like where did that come from Oh, my friend's dad was the captain and I wanted to go on an adventure. And were you growing up in Alaska or they just kind of invited you? Oh, no. I grew up in Redding. Um, my friend that I went to high school with, they, uh, her dad, her family spent those winters in Redding and summers up fishing. What about the uh, the fishing? Like, was it, was it formative? Um, you know, it's this, it's this summer experience in Alaska. Did you learn anything that you think you still apply in your life? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm not even sure I could do an exhaustive list right now. One thing was the community. I was fishing in the on the southern coastline of Alaska. The weather isn't too bad there. It's fairly mild as far as Alaskan mm. weather goes. And it was really laid back. There are a lot of teachers up there during the summers, people who just kind of like wander the whole year, come up there to fish, make a bunch of money, and then just like sail around wherever. Um, and, and people from a lot of different walks of life kind of brought together. We'd all drink together, just people totally different ages. You people that never would have spent time with you know, normally. And, and it really, it was, it was definitely a period of growth for me. And also just to know that I could do that kind of hard work. And it wasn't so much about my physical strength as it was uh, my ability to get along with people and share close spaces with people for long periods of time and that kind of thing. Right. Well, that's awesome. And you're one of these incredibly positive and happy, almost shockingly happy people. And I wanted to ask you in the, you know, day to day, how do you cultivate positivity in your life? How do you create good days? And how do you um, get better at spreading that to other people? I mean, I like to say that good days don't happen to me. I make good days happen. And it definitely mm-hmm. takes you know, conscious choice every day, every moment of every day, as often as I can. Uh, to be like, no, I, I don't want to be unhappy anymore. I don't want to be sad. I want to be a source of energy for the people around me instead of a drain of energy. 
and and just finding ways. I don't know. I, I seek out the magic in life a lot. I, I like to find the absurd or the beautiful or the joyful in even the mundane, and and really try to cultivate that and share that with people. Yeah, well, you are very effective at doing that. I believe that when you were 19, you started using hard drugs. And can you tell me like how um, you're, you're 17, you're um, doing the, this fishing, what led to the hard drugs? Sure. Um, when I got back from that fishing season, I ended up, I would go to shows like these indie hipster shows at this coffee, uh, like coffee tea shop in my town. And I'd go by myself. Uh, I was very, um, I was a loner, sort of, I was very just cynical, didn't, didn't really like people. It was apathetic. Um, and would just go by myself. And, and eventually one of them, one of the members of one of the bands invited me to a house party and I'd never really been to a party before. This was my senior year right. of high school. And I went and um, I was so petrified. I stood against a wall and apparently in hipster speak, that means you're aloof <laughs> if you don't talk to anybody. <laughs> and so right. I kind of like got in with that crowd. And then uh, a few weeks later, I think I found myself in a bathroom snorting out most of two and a half hits of pure MDMA. So that was my mm. gateway drug. But that had an almost immediate and really positive impact on who I was in my life. I mean, friends who didn't know I'd done that even the very next day were like, something's different about you, Brooke. I had a personal space bubble that was practically visible to the naked eye before that. And that really helped, like started helping me be more comfortable with like physical proximity to people uh, and become less cynical. Uh, and then I moved to cocaine when I was in college, I would sit and just talk to people and a mm -hmm. rotating group of friends who would just share our experiences and our thoughts on life. And it was really, really wonderful but then I just started doing heroin and I told myself I needed opiates in order to get rid of the come downs I eventually started getting from the cocaine. And then I eventually uh -huh. dropped cocaine and kept going with the heroin for about a decade. So let me let me back up a little bit here. So um, you were kind of experiencing this this socialization of um, going to these parties and listening to music. And then it sounds like it's kind of like easy to explain away this kind of slippery slope of, oh, I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. But what do you think it really was that was like motivating you to try all these new things? Do you think it was just like exploration? Were you trying to fill a hole? Um, was it just for fun? Or uh, wh why did you kind of, I guess, ramp it up to the more serious drugs? Sure. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I researched everything pretty thoroughly before I tried it, um, any kind mm -hmm. of drugs. And um, I made the decision that, especially after the first time that I did ecstasy, uh, I made the decision that the, the experiences that I, that I had on it, um, and mostly just like a small intimate group of people sitting and telling each other how like awesome we think we each other are, um, which was really, really good for my self-esteem. I decided that that was worth it for me. That was worth the risk. That was worth feeling shitty the next day or having to sneak back into my parents' house and then go to school and then work, that kind of thing. It was all like those were prices I would have been willing to pay in order to get gain the growth that I did from those drugs. Uh, it, it only really started becoming a problem when I stopped being so conscious about that sort of payoff um, mm. and stopped seeking out, you know, and being really aware of what value I was seeking. Right. And so then you started doing crystal, crystal meth, right? Yes. Many years later, this was the last like 20, 2018, 2019. I did some, okay. yeah. So tell me, you you started using heroin, and and um, what happened in your life after that? Well, I had been seeing this guy. We ended up moving down to LA together. Um, that's where he had grown up, and that's when I kind of became sort of disconnected from the social support network that I had, the people that I had been so engaged with, and everything. It was mm -hmm. uh, it took a long time to make friends in LA, but we were living together. I was working for Chipotle. Oh well, that was later. I was actually an escort first. And then I worked for Chipotle and then things kind of really, really slowly communication broke down in that relationship. And I became more and more apathetic and uh, quit heroin in 20, actually, I think it might've actually been 2018. Um, we had sciatica, really, really bad sciatica. I woke up one morning and uh, didn't really care to be alive anymore. My ex had broken up with me at that point and I didn't really see the, 
there wasn't it wasn't really worth it going through all of the struggle and heartbreak and suffering that that is involved in being a human and uh was staying in my car for about six months and then my tire fell off and I ended up on the street right about when my dealer stopped calling me back or stopped answering my phone he was um I was doing fentanyl at that point mainlining fentanyl and quit that cold turkey started doing crystal and then it was like a year and a half, two years later, where I call it my happiness switch flipped. <laughs> yeah. and I suddenly became like a fundamentally different person than I'd ever been in my life before. And everything's been wonderful since. Can you tell me a bit about the escorting? Where does that fall into um, this, I guess, trajectory of your life? And you were with your boyfriend at the same time. Um, why did you get started doing that? Why did you stop it? Sure. Well, it was when I was uh, planning to move down to LA with my ex. It was the first time I was going to be living with a significant other and I wanted to be financially self-sufficient. And I looked into it with him. He drove me to my first interview. Uh, He would help me get dressed for dates and we would gossip about clients later. It was all very much, it was very fun. And I ended up working uh, for a guy in Chicago. I uh, was flown out there and we traveled through a bunch of different states and uh, <laughs> some crazy stuff happened in Miami, and then um, came like back. Uh, well, uh, so my the guy that I worked for kept leaving me at hotels after checkout time, and like not picking up his phone, and I was severely displeased. And I ran into this guy at one of them who was talking up his high class escorting agency, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go with this dude." And it was just his girlfriend mm-hmm. um, and their kid. <laughs> I would babysit. Wow. Uh, but I was I was really conflict averse, and my boss kept calling me. And so the guy was like, here, you want me to talk to him on the phone? And so I said, yes, please take my phone. And he never gave it back. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so I ended up street walking in Miami for a couple of weeks. Uh, and I could have left at any point. Like I didn't feel like my safety was in danger and I knew it would make a good story later. So I kind of stuck it out and then hurricane Andrew hit and we were one of the last people out of Miami and went to Vegas where I sort of like really lazily affected my escape. Um, but it's pretty, pretty fun story. Uh, and then I for a high class agency in Los Angeles for maybe about a year or so. That was that was actually really enjoyable. I met a lot of really cool people. Always felt safe. The guy that I worked for would call five minutes after I got inside, five minutes before the time was up, and uh, he was always nearby. I felt like I felt like he had my back. So that was pretty cool. And I was working for another lady for a while. That was not as fun. And that's why I ended up quitting. It was not, it was not making me feel good about myself. And uh, yeah, I ended up working as a manager for Chipotle after that. So it sounds like you got into escorting as a way of kind of like acquiring agency. Like it it was a way for you to be making your own decisions about um, your interaction with men on a certain level. Would you say that's true? Yeah, yeah. And I forgot to mention this part. I had been doing what, what, what the original impetus behind it was I'd been doing some nude modeling. And a lot of times that would be with older gentlemen who were maybe not always on the up and up. And um, they kind of pushed my boundaries a bit. And I didn't mind if I was getting paid for it. But I kind of minded if I was just getting paid a modeling fee. And so uh, I was like, yeah, maybe I should try this out. And and I did really enjoy it. Like I, I really enjoy people. And there's something... Um, yeah, I get, I get little slices of people's lives, you know, be really intimate with them, you know, more than just being clothed, you know, <laughs> unclothed. Um, it, it was, it was a way to connect with people. And I feel like I brought some people some, uh, some joy. What do you think were the main takeaways from that? Like, uh, it, it sounds like it was a positive experience for you, but it's obviously a very unique experience for most women so what do you think you took away from it that you could share with other people that they are unlikely to kind of figure out on their own? Um, I mean, I think it's I think it's one of those things where it really drives home the lesson that it's all about mentality. You know, if I had been forced to do it, if I'd been doing it out of necessity or because I felt like I had no other options, that would have been awful. But because I was doing it of my own free will, because I was curious about it and and because it was something I wanted to do, I didn't feel that kind of shame that I think people normally associate with that kind of work. Right, right. And so you're escorting and you're using during this time? Yes. All right. And so tell me kind of what happens after that. Like, where's the bridge between 
um, everything that was going on then in that wild lifestyle and who you are now? Basically, uh, close to a decade of not really doing anything, kind of shutting my brain off. That's one of the things heroin is very good at. Um, mm. so I, you're working at Chipotle, right? And you were, um, is that when like you kind of started just shutting yourself out? I was a manager at Chipotle. I worked a few other places. Uh, I think my guess is that I kind of like flourished in college. I spent a lot of time talking to people and feeling my my personal growth was becoming exponential. And then when I stopped doing coke, I stopped talking to those people. I moved to LA. I I I I think that having had that and then lost it was like too much for me to bear for a long time. I later attributed my slide into like total depression from when my ex broke up with me. We still slept together for several years after that. Um, it was not the healthiest situation. But I think it started earlier than that. I think it started when I moved to LA and I just didn't realize it. So you say that's not the healthiest situation. And earlier you were talking about how framing really makes a big difference in how you kind of interpret your agency and your interaction with men. So do you, th do you think the framing of like your relationship with your ex-boyfriend and you're still sleeping together kind of led to um, this, this negative perspective of yourself? Yeah. Yeah. This was um, when I was still having a lot of difficulty with just identifying my own emotions and then expressing them. And um, I think it shattered my soul a little bit every time I wanted to say I love you or things like that and then stifled it. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So you separate from your ex-boyfriend. What happens after that? I was living in a house uh, with some friends in Silver Lake for some time. They all planned to move out of that house, uh, meaning I had to leave too, uh, I believe, December 31st, 2017. And the very, like, I didn't have plans for where I was going after that. Um, I was, it was very, very apathetic at that point. <laughs> I woke up the next day at my ex's house and uh, I couldn't, I couldn't sit up. I was in excruciating pain. I had sciatica. Uh, really, really extreme sciatica where I couldn't walk for months. Um, I mean, it would take me with two crutches, 20 minutes to walk 10 feet. It was, it was um, the first time in my life where I, I crossed that line into deciding that I, if it, if the pain continued at that level, I would kill myself. Mm. Um, and so I was just staying in my car and then my tire fell off my car right around when my fentanyl dealer stopped picking up his phone. And so I kind of, I went to the the park where I've been charging my phone in the library sometimes. And he said, I knew there were homeless people there. I figured if I was going to be for real on the street, I needed to know how to do it. So um, met some people there, started doing crystal because that's what everybody does. Uh, that was the only thing that I used as far as like, uh, you know, transitioning from heroin. I didn't, you know, use any suboxone or methadone, anything like that. Just, <laughs> just crystal meth. And, uh, that, I mean, being on the street was a whole, probably could take a whole another couple hours, like all of that. Um, but yeah, is there a direct question you want me to, you want to ask me next or should I just keep going with that? Well, tell me a bit about, like, I don't know a lot about that lifestyle. I don't know a lot about, you know, um, like consistently using hard drugs. I don't know a lot about the depth of the addiction. And it sounds like you hit uh, a real rock bottom, but you were kind of agentic and aware kind of the whole time of everything you were doing. You, you were very intentional. You know, you were going to the library and you had all of these plans. Can you tell me a little bit about the life experience of having gone through all of this and uh, what people should know about homeless people and about drug addiction that perhaps, you know, they, they haven't really had much of a chance to learn about. The drugs made my problems worse, but they were not, they were not the cause of my problems. Um, <clears throat> and same, same with services and things like that on the street, you know, people, people talking about, we need more services for homeless people and stuff like that. And I don't know how it is in, in this town I'm living in now, but in LA, there were services everywhere. It was not hard. You could talk to just about anybody and find services really, really quickly. I even had, um, I had, I had a wonderful caseworker that put me into kind of like this uh, uh, experimental sort of uh, shelter where the only rule was you had to be in at 11 at night. 
twice. And I, I never managed to stay a single night. Uh, I was just like, had such crippling anxiety and, 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 and some various problems that just, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the pressure. I would, I would get distracted dumpster diving and then know I was going to be late. And I would just imagine that conversation and then being kicked out the next day. And then just, I just, you know, it's not even worth going back anyway. And then I'd be gone for like three days, just completely off the grid. And, uh, wasn't talking to any of my family during that time. Uh, the, the shame <laughs> of everything was just, was too much. Um, but it wasn't, it was that I had lost sight of it, of what made life worth living. It wasn't that I was no longer able to, you know, interview for work or, or do any of that. I just didn't, I didn't see the reason to anymore. It sounds like the intensity of facing almost the responsibility of doing these tiny things to help yourself was almost like a, a mountain that was not worth climbing. And so it was just so much easier to keep doing what you were doing. And I feel like a lot of people experience that kind of thing in obviously much smaller ways in the way they deal with procrastination and in the, in the way they stick with their dead end job. A lot of people encounter this on the regular. So they're dealing with much smaller mountains. So what advice do you have for people that also have this kind of guilt or shame? Maybe they were promising students and in life never went their way, or they thought life was a certain kind of way. And then they were really disappointed when they got out there and realized things weren't going to just be handed to them. What advice do you have for people that are stuck in this kind of guilt and shame about where they are and where they thought they would be? And how did you get through that toward a better tomorrow? For one thing, I think there's danger in describing it as easier uh, because I, I think that that's maybe um, thinking about like short term versus long term costs mm -hmm. and, and value and things like that. In the long term, it was much, much harder, much worse for me to be on the street um, mm -hmm. in, in terms of the way that it felt um, just moment to moment. And that's, that's why so many of people in those kind of situations do drugs because it, it helps you ignore your problems for a little bit longer while they, while they continue to compound in the background. Uh, really, it was easiest <laughs> for me to, to stop thinking moment to moment and to really realize like, oh, like my life, like if I continue to ignore my problems, they're just going to keep getting worse. Easiest just to deal with them now. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, as far so you're as saying, you're saying that like what kind of woke you up was just recognizing the difficulty of your situation. I mean, that's, that's a complicated question to answer. Uh, there were a number of things that went into it. I was in an abusive relationship and mm -hmm. he, yeah, I met him when I was like at my, like probably close to as, as rocky of a rock bottom as one can get in life. And he was young and handsome and going to school a bunch and worked a bunch. And um, I used to make jokes about how if, if I matched Ted Bundy's victim profile and was alive back then, that he would definitely end up killing me. Because I <laughs> so this was this was a little ironic that I ended up uh, falling in with this guy later. But he was very mean to me, and I thought it was because of you know my appearance at the time, what I'd been doing, and 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 my overall like affect. And so I changed those things practically overnight. I, I you just became the super chipper person and started, you know, I got jobs and just like, really turned everything around, stopped using. And, and it wasn't enough, of course, because that's, it, you know, that's not really how it works. People don't stop being mean just because those kind of external things change. Um, and. So what was the catalyst for that? Like you said, you became overnight, you became this chipper person, but. Um, there, there, there has to be a cause there, right? Was it because you were unsatisfied with that relationship or what was it that made that overnight change? It was, it was a conversation that we had the first time he opened up to me, he told me about this, this kind of like distance crush that he had on this girl for years, barely even spoke to her. Um, and he had hmm. sent her a text message and she didn't respond to it. I th or, or maybe she responds somewhat flippantly and he went out to drink with his friends 
They ended up ditching him because he was too depressed. And they kept telling him, you know, you'll get over it. It's just a crush. You'll get over it. And he smoked two packs of cigarettes and woke up in a hospital because he'd had a heart attack. In retrospect, that all should have been uh, pretty big red flags for me. <laughs> he later yeah. ended up stalking me. But at the time, my heart went out to me. I had had kind of one of those unrequited, super intense, like obsession crushes in high school. And, and I realized that despite everything that I had been through to that point, which included, you know, sexual assault and you know everything that comes with being on the street, despite all of that, this guy needed help more than I did. And so I told myself, wow. like, like, stop being so immature, get your shit together. Cause this guy, you know, like, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Just, just, um, I would deal with my, I will process all the trauma and everything later. Like, I will do it, just not right now. Right now, this person needs me. So you have an abusive boyfriend, and you turn your life around to help him? I didn't know he was going to be abusive at that point. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't so think the abuse really came does. afterwards. I mean, he was mean right. to me. He was mean to me from the beginning. And so then I was like, well, he just he's not going to be mean to me anymore if, if I don't look homeless, if I get a job, if I stop using. Because those were all the things that he would point out and and be really really nasty to me about, um, and then that didn't work. And I think as I as I kept like changing changing my my behavior and circumstances where he you could no longer complain about the same things. That's I think that's why the violence ramped up as quickly as it did. Um, it was only I mean I was only with him for that period for a, like a few months. Um, and, uh, and it was interesting how like cogent we both were about, and yet and, like it's stupid we both were about this. I mean, like he, the first time he, he like physically was aggressive towards me, he shook me and we had a long talk about it. And I was like, it's not okay to touch me in anger ever. And he right. cried and all this stuff. And then the next time he hit me and I like, I screamed. I remember it was, it's, it's the only time in my life I have ever just screamed like that. It wasn't at him. It was just like my soul shattering because I knew in that moment, like I'd always had like no respect for women who got hit and then stayed, <laughs> you know, hit me once, it hit me twice. You know, that's on me kind of thing. And I didn't understand why people would ever stay. And, and, and in that moment I felt like a lifelong belief shattering because I knew I would be able to forgive him if, if like, you know, if, if he said the right things, I guess. And we, we talked a lot about why he did it. It was always very like analytical and I could talk to him about all this stuff. And I kept thinking like, okay, he understands why he did this. He understands why it's not okay. And he's not going to do it again. But then I don't know, after, after he punched me, just my arm, it wasn't that hard. But the next like really big incident was um, him smothering me. Cause I, up until that point, I kept telling him like, I just need to go for a walk. I need to be away from you right now. I'm coming back. I just need some space. And he would freak out. And this time I told him, I'm leaving you. Like, there's nothing else I can try. This is over. And we spent about four hours in the car. I had the seat leaned down eventually because I just kind of given up. Like, if you're not gonna let me get out of the car, then just, you know, go ahead and kill me, get this over with. And he had it on top of me with his hands over my mouth. And at one point he was like hitting his hand over my mouth and he would, yeah, he was smothering me a few times off and on for several hours. And I'm pretty sure he did that because he knew he couldn't punch me because we'd had that talk. He knew it wasn't okay to hit. And so he had like, it does that is kind of like this weird logic. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that's what ended up happening there. Uh, but through all that afterwards, I kind of realized if I can change myself that fundamentally that quickly for someone else, I can do it for me. And, and, and then I started doing it. It's pretty wild, right? Because people talk about people that are suffering abuse and they say that would never be me. It's these, you know, <laughs> it's these broken people that are just like, they don't know what their situation is and they're weak. But then you get in the situation yourself and you realize that there's this incredibly complicated sense-making system going on, right? Mm. Where everything you want to justify everything you want to make sense of everything because we're operating from this place of um kind of comfort and knowledge with this individual we have this relationship that we want to maintain right like that's what i'm getting from this so my question for you is what 
do you have to say to other people that are suffering abuse or are in these situations and they're doing the sense making, right? And they're saying, well, you know, he's a really good guy, but he makes mistakes when X, Y, and Z happens and he just doesn't have complete control. And they're making all these excuses, right? That Mm -hmm. are so sometimes convoluted, um, but at the base of it, right? It's, it's, it's a kind of empathy. It sounds like it's like, in the same way that you wanted to be a better person to help him, it's that same kind of thing, or that's how I'm interpreting it, where people are trying to do the right thing. And by trying to do the right thing for other people, they're putting themselves in these dangerous situations. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, so a few things, actually. Um, After that smothering incident, uh, it was fascinating to me how drained I was. Like, I didn't even, I was staying in the car with him at the time. And I I just sat there for like a day and a half, just like in like a, um, zombie-like state, like just scrolling my phone, reading about domestic abuse because I had never really read about it before, and um, it took it took that extreme of an incident for me incident for me to really realize what was going on, and I didn't leave his car until I read um, an article. It was it was uh, some, some kind of statistics on on homicide. Uh, with intimate partners. And it said that people who are the victim of a blocked airway attack, which is choking, strangling, smothering, um, at the hands of an intimate partner are 700% more likely to end up dead at the hands of said Mm. partner. And that is such a big number. Like that is a crazy big number. And I had been telling myself, like, I don't think my life is in danger. But when I read that, I was like, you know what, that's probably exactly what all 700% of those people (laughs) also thought. And so then I, 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 got away for a while, went off grid. Um, and he spent several months stalking me and a bunch of other stuff happened later. But what I'm trying to get at is, is with these kind of things frequently, um, I, I believe that the isolation is a huge, huge factor. Um, you, it becomes kind of like, you kind of forget what actual normal is and you get used to this new normal that isn't okay. Um, and, and part of the problem with relationships like that is, is, you know, he would get angry when I talked to other people, he would, you know, get angry if I texted other people and they is this level of control that makes it harder to reach out to people and to find out, Hey, this really isn't okay. Um, mm. yeah. So I don't know if I have any particular advice about that. Um, but just don't, um, I'm gonna have to think about that for a minute. I'm so sorry. I wasn't prepared for advice. <laughs> no. It's fine. I mean, let me put it a different way. I, I don't mean like we're, where you're on a pedestal or something like that. I guess I'm asking what can you say to other people that might be going through this right now? Like what, what might you tell a person that's, that's experiencing this? I don't know. I, I, I was telling myself it'll get better. And if it's not good now, then, then you shouldn't be doing it. I think is, is what I would have to say. Don't wait for things to get better. Not, not when you're within that cycle. You know, I wanted to try to help him be less angry, to be less hurtful, all those things, but I couldn't do it from within his power. And, you know, maybe we can figure out ways to help people down the line where we're not putting our safety at risk. Um, but you never know when someone's going to snap and that, you know, it's going to go just a step too far and you won't have a chance to later. So you've, you've had this, um, this difficult and I guess risky life of a sort. And so you leave this guy and at what point, do you become this kind of positive, happy person that's focused on bettering yourself? It was almost immediately after I sort of recovered from that event. I was still on the mm-hmm. street. I was I started using again after that. But I at that point, it wasn't it never felt like this ominous sort of omnipresent life sentence where I don't know if I'm ever going to stop. I knew in my heart that I was just using because I was traumatized and I would stop as soon as I wasn't. And I did. <laughs> so that was pretty validating. But um, I spent about two or three months um, kind of just trying to avoid him. And um, he ended up finding me. There's a whole bunch. I don't know how in, how in-depth you want me to go here. I was staying at this abandoned building. And that kind of collapsed. It was run by gangsters. It was a bad situation. Uh, but I had gotten a cat. Did it collapse? Oh, uh, no, the situation collapsed. Uh, people okay. stole stuff. There was, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. I've been talking about squats. Um, I, the, the thing that was really the catalyst in the end was that I had gotten a cat. I got my cat Pico 
and I had no right getting a cat. And I never thought I would be the kind of person to get a cat when I wasn't capable of taking care of a cat. But at this point, I was happy. I felt like self-sufficient. I was able to dumpster dive to get whatever I need. I was making better decisions about who I spent my time with and mm-hmm. um, my physical safety and things like that. And um, I shouldn't have got a cat, but I did. And and then uh, when I, I said staying in that in that building... And then when things fell apart there, I ended up back in Parham's car. And it was astonishing how quickly it took for things to go from like kind of shitty to like horrifying. Uh, I spent about a month in his car. And um, <clears throat> I mean, there was one time uh, he was swerving. I mean, he would drive like 80 miles an hour on surface streets and swerve and slam on the brakes. Um, he, one time he was doing that when I was halfway out the car door. I was trying to get out and he was holding me down. Another time he tried to find me and I was like hiding behind some cars and he was racing up and down these neighborhood streets at, you know, midnight, 1am, you know, just, uh, it was terrifying. It was something from a horror movie. Um, and, and that was all, it's a pretty severe PTSD after that. But eventually, um, I realized my life is the second time he almost killed me was when I tried leaving again. And he, at this point, we weren't even dating. I was just trying to go away from his car, (laughs) but he had me pinned behind the, the car seat. And, um, uh, my knees were, my knees were tucked up and he like grabbed my head and like wrenched it sideways down in the seat. And so at that point I started pretending like everything was fine because I, I didn't feel like I could tell him I was leaving without risking my life and Pico's life. So kind of like got to where he trusted me a little bit more, spent a couple of weeks pretending and then contacted a domestic violence shelter in Long Beach that was able to take my cat in. And then I went down to Long Beach and then spent like a week there where I was having a lot of trouble figuring out like how to get into a shelter, uh, all this stuff. I don't know. Eventually, I just realized that Pico was still sitting at this, this shelter for like a week and he was really sad and he probably thought that I had abandoned him. And so I called my parents. I had like a moment where I broke and cried for like two hours. Everything's my fault. Oh, my God. I did this to my cat. And then I like picked myself up, <laughs> dusted myself. All right, I'm gonna call my parents, and uh, they were wonderful. And came and picked me up a couple days later. So you hadn't called your parents like up until this point, right? Yeah, about two three years. I was not in contact with any of my friends or family. Hmm. So after all of this happened, you must have been fairly traumatized. And you you're talking about like how you're going to be after the trauma ends and how did how did you walk through the trauma like how did you get through that a big part of it was was that practice that i learned where i put things out of my mind not to not to squash them away forever or hide them in a box but just say i will process you just not right now not right now and then by doing that long enough it finally got to a point where i could look in the face of some of those experiences without all that emotional weight um, and kind of process them when it was safer to do so also, when I got back to my parents' house, um, they were they were kind of supportive enough to just give me a few months to just do my thing. Like I wasn't really okay being around strangers. I gasped all the time. Like my sleep records looked crazy uh, if I slept. And I just took things step by step. All right, I'm gonna work on fixing my sleep patterns. And I would, you know, experiment with different things each day. Try to like, you know, I, I realized if I stayed really active. If I didn't drink caffeine after noon and um, if I didn't take any naps, that was the only time I could sleep well at night. Um, and I started using a smartwatch and paying attention to uh, both sleep records and physical activity levels and also my food and just really, really, really basic things. You know, I would walk out of the room if news was on or politics was being discussed because I couldn't handle stress at all and kind of just like built up my uh, foundation uh, just one step at a time, just from scratch and and kind of like really consciously went about trying to build a better book, I guess. And uh, then I stopped needing, needing those practices quite as much. Right. So it sounds like it was kind of like you were focusing on small wins. I, I would almost uh, prefer the phrasing biggest possible thing. And sometimes the biggest possible hmm. improvement was really just being able to sleep a little bit longer one night or being a little bit happier during one day. You know, it was, it was, you know, sometimes the biggest I could do was not very big, but it didn't take very long before I was starting to apply some of the things that I felt like were helpful to me to our pets or to my parents or to my friends. And it's kind of like where this whole like the project thing came from. I made a discord server because I was calling all my friends all the time, really excited about this stuff. And it was kind of too much. And so then I started making a blog and YouTube videos and then I came to Twitter. And it's like each, each time I like, if I, if I'm conscious about that process of like making whatever improvements I can, whenever I can, 
it didn't take very long for me to go to zero to like feel like I'm like pretty on fire. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so, um, so you went through this trauma and I, I feel like it's easy for a lot of people to see themselves as a victim in this case. What do you think about victimization and how do you think um, the concept of being a victim interacts with uh, someone's identity? I can't really, like, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but for me personally, mm -hmm. it wasn't until I stopped seeing myself as a victim that I was able to get over the trauma that had happened to me. Like I, you know, like I can only laugh, like with, with that guy, there were so many red flags, just so many. I mean, he definitely stopped that girl. You know, he told me some stories about him and, and said some things where I just, I even noticed them at the time. I remember thinking like, Oh, that's, that's, that's a little weird. All right. Well, that could mean this thing. Um, <clears throat> but it wasn't enough for, to make me like actually change my behavior. And I like to use the phrase wide eyed stupid. Now it's from a cryptonomicon. I think they're discussing going into a business meeting where you know, it's going to go terrible and you go anyway. Like that's one of my favorite phrases in life right now, because I've done being wide eyed stupid. You know, there's enough times where my instincts told me to do or not do something. And, and I went against them and paid the consequences, paid the price. So um, I am all about not doing that anymore. His actions were absolutely, absolutely not okay. Not okay at all. Um, but if I had been um, taking better care of myself, he wouldn't have had the chance to do them in the first place. Breaking it down to make it really simple. How do you make it so that you don't see yourself as a victim when you're in the mindset of suffering this trauma? Like when you're, when your mind is revisiting this it sounds like your reframe was really powerful but in like a really simple practical way how did you frame that in your mind i always try to think about um if there was any point in time where i could have changed my actions either caused something to happen or could have prevented something to happen so like when i had um things stolen from me on the street or whatever um there was never a case where i couldn't think back and like okay i stayed up for too long fell asleep where i shouldn't have or i didn't you know, keep a careful enough eye on something, or I wasn't being careful about who I trusted in my space and things like that. Um, there's always some point in time where I could have changed the course of events. And as soon as I realized that it kind of like, you know, in a way that doesn't internalize it and make it my fault, but just like, oh, this is how I could do it better next time. I feel like those, at least for me, those feelings of like victimhood and have, of having been wronged sort of just dissolve. You're also intentional about developing friendships. Um, you mentioned that if you had millions of dollars, you'd like invite a bunch of friends to mm. live with you and go on adventures. Uh, I think this is something people often struggle with, especially after many people exit their like social systems of like school and family networks. And especially now that people are feeling really isolated um, with the coronavirus, I feel like you've been really successful at figuring out how to develop friendships on Twitter and otherwise. Um, what have you learned about that process and how should other people uh, go about seeking new friendships, especially when they're um, kind of stuck, stuck at home, you know? I mean, I, one thing that has been of great benefit to me is, is I don't really draw a distinction between the virtual and the, and the, you know, in real life worlds. Uh, right. You know, if I'm talking to somebody online, I'm going to treat it like a, like, like an IRL interaction. Um, uh, you know, I, everything that I do, I do to make connections and seek meaning in life and have meaningful sort of like experiences and learn things. And um, I, I think also it's important to remember that like we are all kind of a little bit messed up at heart. We are all a little bit like uh, socially inept. And, yeah. and <laughs> when I keep that in mind, like even the people that I'm really scared to talk to, they've probably got some of that going on just like I do. And I think that, that, that humanizing factor really helps a lot. When you decide that you want to have a friendship with somebody, like, what do you do? I go well, on Twitter uh, specifically, I go to people's profile whenever they follow me and I read a couple of tweets. And if it's something that resonates with me, like uh, I am Philos, <laughs> I saw his pinned tweet and immediately like reached out to him. I was like, I want to be friends with you because I feel like we have a lot in common. 
that's also part of like having had my values shift. Um, I, I remember I've had all these experiences lately where I'm just like, oh God, that's so obvious. Why didn't I, why didn't I do that before? Why didn't I realize that? Like I knew that. Why wasn't I acting that way? Like, like I liked having friends before, but I didn't actively seek them out. I didn't try to build communities or, or really make new friends that often. And now I'm just like, making friends is so awesome. Why wasn't I doing it all the time? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just uh, now that I'm really clear about my values, it's easier for me to see other people's values shine through their tweets and things like that. And I can kind of pinpoint when I feel like somebody would have, I would have a strong connection with somebody that way. Right. And I want to revisit this because I'm trying to think about how to phrase this. What I want to know is like, how can a person instead of treating themselves with blame and judgment, how can a person learn to treat themselves with, with compassion and empathy so that they can extend that compassion and empathy to other people? I mean, for me, um, I mean, it kind of took me realizing that I wasn't making bad choices because I was a bad person. I was making bad choices because I had some, some issues and and realizing that I didn't look down on other people for struggling in life, and and so why should I why should I look down on myself? Kind of. And it also it helped that I got like to to real rock bottom, and and from that point, it's like you know you're it's it's death or figuring your shit out <laughs> are pretty much the right. two options. <laughs> um, but at that point, it's like how much like I can't I can't go any lower. Like it can only get better from here, and it can only get better if I choose to make it better. And kind of like having that having that you know, not just a desire to get better, but also taking action. You know, like I'm really proud of me, myself for like fixing my sleep schedule. It's a really, really minor thing, but I'm really proud of it. And like every day I wake up, when I wake up refreshed, I, it's like, I am, am reminded that that didn't just happen, that I made that happen. And even though it's not something that really anybody else would see as that big of a thing, it's a really big thing to me. And I try to remind myself of like those steps that I've taken and that, um, gratitude towards myself makes it easier and, uh, yeah, it makes it easier for me to continue taking steps like that, which kind of feeds on it. How do you think people can cultivate gratitude in their own life? Like you're talking about having gratitude toward yourself. Is that like your your past self? Are you grateful that, for instance, you went to bed at the right time or, you know, weren't drinking all night, for instance? Um, or in what way... Do you practice gratitude? Do you have a way of reminding yourself? Do you have a certain practice? I mean, it. so I feel like the way our brains work is you know, when we focus on, on things, repeat certain things, we get better at them. We experience them stronger and we can do that in either direction. We can do that with suffering or we can do that with, with positive things. And with gratitude, mm -hmm. you know, my brain doesn't accept it if I just make some shit up. Like it's, I can't do the false like false positivity thing. But if I, if I set myself to the task of thinking about one or two things in each moment or as many moments as I can, that, that I'm genuinely really grateful for. And then I kind of like savor those. I just think about them until I get that emotional response and do that like a couple times every day. It becomes more natural and I start doing it more automatically until it just becomes the norm. So you took a hiatus from Twitter for a little while. Why was that? I'm pretty sure I have post-viral fatigue syndrome. <laughs> not, not, sorry. What, what is that? Uh, so long COVID, like they've talked about with the long haulers. I, I, I got sick in February, which was just days after I, I like reconnected with my parents and stopped using drugs. Uh, it was just like a not super severe illness. Um, but it was, it was right after I came up from Long Beach and I said for like three weeks, then my mom got sick and my friend got sick and his mom got so sick. She was coughing up blood. And, um, I joked, that? well, we joked about it later, um, uh, because I mean, only a few people had, uh, t been tested positive for coronavirus in California at that time. Uh, it wasn't severe enough for me to go in the hospital. So I never got tested, but I had several months of migraines after that. I kept thinking I was getting sick. I had these periods of like fever and fatigue. Mm. and and they kept going it was too often for me to just have been getting sick i started getting some weird heart stuff um skipped beats uh various arrhythmias tachycardia um and and then i thought maybe it was my teeth that had a tooth pulled because i had some decay from being on the street and i thought maybe it was mold it just never went away and it got worse and worse and like at first it'd be like 
good couple weeks, bad couple weeks. Then it was like good couple days, bad couple weeks. And then it was like good couple hours. And I ended up um, seeing a cardiologist and an electrophysiologist had an EP study done, which is a surgery where they go in and uh, try to induce arrhythmias. And everyone pretty much implied that everything was in my head. Um, symptoms have been super varied, uh, like gastrointestinal stuff. Some days I wake up with really low blood pressure and get lightheaded all the time. Some days I get, uh, you know, too out of breath to even like stand up in the shower. I'll just have no strength. Uh, lots of, lots of days of fever. Um, it got peaked, I think at the end of December, uh, was, I was coughing up blood for a couple of days and my heart records, my EKGs are, are still not all the way recovered. They got pretty, pretty severely messed up looking. Um, but I've been feeling better the last couple of weeks. Had this really strange symptom, which makes me uh, more convinced that it is uh, post-viral fatigue syndrome. There's this thing called fizzing, um, like F-I-Z-Z-I-N-G. Um, and I woke up one day, I was like, mom, I feel really weird. I feel like I'm vibrating, but it's like fuzzy, but it's tingly, but it's not quite either of those things. And she looked up, she's like, fizzing? <laughs> and it totally fits what I felt like. I felt like my blood was carbonated. And uh, apparently that is a symptom that other people have reported having with post-viral fatigue syndrome. <laughs> it's the strangest wow. damn thing I felt in my life. Never even felt like that on drugs or anything. So that makes me feel more, uh, it's more likely that it is actually post-viral fatigue syndrome. But a lot of doctors still don't really know much about it. My, I saw my EP today and he, he hadn't really even heard of it. So uh, it's kind of like people with long COVID are in the driver's seat, kind of have to take agency and be their own advocate right now. Wow. So how do you feel like today? Like what is your day to day like now in January? Um, I, oh, I didn't mention the brain fog, brain fog, mental confusion, um, you know, memory problems that was happening for quite some time. That's mostly the reason why I was taking Twitter breaks. because My brain wasn't working well enough, but last couple of weeks, um, it's been gradual increase in, um, uh, like my endurance and, um, yeah, I've been feeling better and better. I have a couple of days where it's not quite as great. Um, usually you feel really good in the mornings and then kind of lose energy in the evenings. Uh, but overall, it's much, much better than it's been in months. So I am, fingers crossed, that I have reached reached the tail end of it. Well, I'm really glad to hear it sounds like everything's improving. And I, I hope you stay on that path. And I've got to say, I think you're overall positivity after everything you've been through <laughs> is really inspiring. Um, and I, I want to know if you have any last words? Is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on? Is there anything you want to tell the audience? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I did not plan this out. And, and I'm feeling flustered. So no, I'm gonna say no on that. <laughs> <laughs> your story is really powerful and i want to thank you for coming on and sharing your experience and i personally find it very empowering to know um that you've you've been through so much and afterwards you've found a way to even though you've been sick this year to still maintain this incredible positivity and to be the the force in your own life to cultivate this positivity and happiness. So thanks for coming on, Brooke. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I you you did an excellent job as an interviewer. I'm very impressed with your skills and look forward to listening to all your future episodes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Brooke. All right, bye bye. It was great to have Brooke on the show. For more episodes, please subscribe on becomingcreature.substack.com and remember to like, comment, and share your favorite episodes. My music is by Frank IV and Murphy Chicken, and our new art is by Four Shaper. I'll see you soon.